morning. If you have your Bibles, get them open to Mark chapter 2. Can you join me in thanking the praise team real quick and uh, for leading us in time of worship? I like the acoustic set this morning. If you have a uh, again, if you have your Bibles, get to Mark chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there's a black one to see back in front of you. If you get to page 888, you'll find yourself in Mark chapter 2 and be able to follow along with us in our passage that will be verses 13 to 17 this morning. We're so thankful that you're here today. Um, thank you for fighting the winter that showed up overnight, apparently. We just jumped like that overnight. So uh, I don't know how many, how many of you were ex- surprised to see the snow how many of you are excited to see the snow? If you're excited to see it, you're wrong, all right? You're just wrong, um, but that's okay. You don't have to be right about everything, and, uh, but we'll, we, you know, it's a good, t- good time for, the, for snow to catch me off guard in the season where I'm telling everybody to work on their gratitude and be thankful, and I had to really fight yesterday to find things to be thankful for, and so that was healthy for me, but uh, we're glad you're here and that you braved uh, the cold weather to be here. Um, as the Lord would have it, we got the heater for this room fixed on Monday, um, and so Aren't we thankful for that, right? And so we're, this, this would have been a much different experience today. And so um, we're, we're grateful to God for even climate-controlled rooms today. And so we're, I'm going to ask um, that if you are a guest this morning, first of all, we're glad that you're here. And uh, there's a Connect card and a seat back in front of you. Um, there are, there's a QR code you can scan. There's lots of different ways that you can let us know you are here. Um, and if you'll stop by our welcome desk on the way out, we have a gift for you because we know how hard it is to try something new. Um, We're grateful for everybody who's here. And I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we launch out into this message time. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful. Uh, We are thankful for your love. We're thankful for your grace. We're thankful for the opportunity that we have to gather uh, together this morning uh, to to sing praises to you. uh, For our groups already, some groups already to have met, to to now, God, just to open your word. and, and, And as we look at your word, Lord, and as we step into a time of communion, God, we just pray that you... Uh, you would just take over now. God, that you would uh, continue on what you've already began uh, this morning and that you would get the glory from all this, that your voice would be the loudest. Um, and we ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So it was a few weeks ago, I got an invitation in my email uh, to come to the Crisis Pregnancy Center's annual fundraising banquet and to open the night in prayer. Right? And so they were like, there's going to be 800 people there, and we want to extend this invitation to you. And for a few reasons, when I first read it, my first instinct was just like, no, nah, I'm going to pass on this. Right? And, and one of them is, is, this may surprise you based on the line of work I'm in, but I don't enjoy public speaking. Right? I, don't, I don't enjoy talking in front of people. It, it's still a nerve-wracking thing for me. And then there's also some weird like, theological hurdles that I just bring in the situation. A lot of times when I see pastors do this, it's like they're performing a prayer, and I don't want to ever do that. And so I was just kind of like, you know what? I'm just going to say no to this. But I decided to wait 24 hours and pray about it and talk to a couple people, and I ended up saying yes. And you know why? Because I thought about what the Crisis Pregnancy Center does. And I thought about this past year in America and, and, how, and, and how the Crisis Pregnancy Center and the pro-life movement in particular has, has been under just tremendous scrutiny. And I knew, I knew if I said yes to this, then I would be announced on that night to that room as the pastor of First Baptist North. And ultimately what I wanted was I wanted this place to be identified with our local CBC. I wanted that ministry and all who were there to know we stand with you. And that message overrode all my other concerns. I quickly got past them, and I went ahead and did it. Because there's something powerful about identifying yourself with someone. There's something powerful about identifying yourself with a something or a group or some cause. And it's why, really, it's why we should be very thoughtful, and I would argue even slow to do so. 
Right? This can be minor, right? You, you, you identify yourself with, with a team when you wear their logo on their shirt, and it, it opens yourself up to banter from other fans, right? But it can also be a much bigger deal than that. Right? We can wear the logo of an organization. You can promote a cause on your social media profile. You can put a campaign sign in your yard. Those are the things that we need to be way more thoughtful of. Because by identifying with them, I, I'm sending messages, even if some of the messages I didn't intend to send. Now, ultimately, for the follower of Jesus, our number one aim, right, we should strive to identify ourselves with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, we're told that, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are to be his representatives, right, since God is making his appeal through us. That's kind of the positive, encouraging side. Here's the more scary side. Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. The Bible is clear. We are to unashamedly carry the banner of Jesus with us. We are to wear it proudly. It's why it's often said from this stage that FBN is unashamedly and unapologetically a Jesus church. It's because we want to be identified with him above everything else. And today as we continue our study in the book of Mark, we're going to be reminded of a powerful truth. And it's this, that the reason we love him is because he first loved us. The reason we even have the opportunity to identify ourselves with Jesus this morning is because he first identified himself with us. That we have a God and a Lord and a Savior and a Father who claims us openly. And that kind of grace, that kind of love, that truth should shape our identity and it should birth in us this desire to represent him rightly to others. To be the ambassadors we're called to be. And so if you've ever doubted your salvation... You ever wondered if, if God loves you? You ever, you ever wondered if, if he ever felt like he regretted saving you? If you ever questioned whether he could or he would even want to save you? If, if, if you ever questioned whether he'd ever want to claim you? Or if you've ever gone really deep into religion but have never truly known the grace of God? Then I'm really thankful you're here today. Because in Mark chapter 2, God's going to send us a really strong message and picture in his word today. And so I'm going to invite Jeff McIntosh up to read that for us. He's going to be reading for us out of Mark 2, verses 13 to 17. And if you are physically capable, would you please stand with him to honor the reading of the word of the Lord this morning? Good morning, Jeff. Verse 13, Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus heard this, or excuse me, when Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I did not, call to come, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Thank you, Jeff. You guys have a seat. As always, keep your Bibles open there to Mark chapter 2. Any other uh, supporting passages we'll put on the screens. And if you've, you've been here much at all, you've tracked the way I teach, you know I like pulling uh, truths out of passages and highlighting them. And, and there's one that I think is the overriding obvious one in this story. It's kind of the point of the story, and it's this, is that Jesus identified himself with sinners. 
Now, now we're early in the book of Mark, right? We're, we're barely halfway through chapter two, but we've already seen this message repeated. Right? In, in the incarnation, right, Jesus took on our form. In his baptism, he identified himself with sinners. In enduring the temptation, right, he went through our struggles. He identified himself with those. This is why he went from town to town preaching his gospel. It's why he touched the leper before ever healing him. It's why he forgave the paralytic before ever healing him. It's because he kept identifying himself with these people. It's why he'll go to the cross. Right? Romans 5, Paul picks up on this. He said, but God proves his love for us in this, right? That while we were sinners, while we were sinners, Christ identified himself and died for us. He took on the form of humanity. He walked in our shoes. He felt our pain. He faced our temptation. And on the cross, he took our sin and the wrath of God that was due it. Which is why it should not be a surprise to us that he so readily identified himself with those branded as sinners when he was here. We're told in this passage that, that he calls Levi to be his disciple. Now, Levi actually is, is the guy who, begins to, who takes the name Matthew. So he wrote the gospel before this. And so he calls Matthew while he's sitting in the, what the CSB puts, the toll booth. This means that, that he's a tax collector. And later in verse 14 and 15, we read that he's at Levi's house. And, and we're, there is a whole bunch of other tax collectors and quote unquote sinners there as well. And Jesus and his disciples are there at the house and they're fellowship with him, with them and they're eating with them. And it says in the end of verse 15 that many of them end up following Jesus. Now you need to know this would not be the recommended church growth strategy of that day. This is where understanding historical context would help because tax collectors were the most despised people in society. I know that's not hard for you to wrap your minds around, right? Nobody likes people taking taxes, but there's even worse in that day. The reason that so many Jewish people wanted the Messiah to be an earthly king is because they wanted to get out from under the thumb of Rome. Rome was an impressive ruler. And one of the strategies they used in areas they conquered was to cripple people through taxes. And they did this by getting their own people to turn against them. And so for these Jewish regions, they would actually hire Jewish people to be tax collectors. And so tax collectors were automatically seen as traitors. And even worse, Rome refused to regulate these guys. Right? They had one job they had to absolutely do, and it was acquire the taxes that the Roman government needed. And then they told them, if you want a salary for doing this job, just take more than what's needed. But they put absolutely no limit on what the tax collector could take. And so they were already seen as outcasts. They were already seen as traitors. And then they were incentivized to rip people off because they would benefit from it. And so worse than how they viewed Romans, worse than even how they viewed Samaritans, the tax collectors were the most despised people in that society. And to be frank, they earned some of that. And so you have Jesus as a rabbi Calling a tax collector to be one of his chosen disciples, this was never done. And then beyond that, he goes to his house of all places, right? And then he hangs out with all his tax collector friends and then to fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. This was beyond scandalous. And when Jesus is questioned about this, I love his response. In the second half of verse 17, he says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Like, I came to call sinners. I came to seek and save those who are lost. And this group that you think I shouldn't be with, they, they're my purpose. They're why I came. Now, as great as that is, right, we, we can still misrepresent this in our own heads because I know we won't like to admit it, but we all have people in life that are harder to love, don't we? 
There are people that just take extra work to be gracious to, people that take extra effort to love, extra enabling of the Holy Spirit. You're probably thinking of them right now, right? And what happens is this. We start to begin to believe that that's how God loves us. That it's somehow out of his goodness that he has to work up the muster to feel love for us. The problem is that God is not like us at all. He doesn't begrudgingly love us in spite of our sin and in spite of our failings. He is fully aware of our sin. He knows it all, and his love overwhelms it. There's no one, no one who's ever loved you like God loves you. His love precedes your salvation. He identified himself with you, a sinner. He took your place, and he still identifies himself with you in Jesus to claim, this is my son and this is my daughter. And when you are loved like that, and you know it, that changes you. The problem is sometimes people don't know it, or they refuse to believe it, or they don't truly experience it. And then what happens from there is damaging. Because those who don't truly know God always end up misrepresenting him. See, Jesus had one ministry strategy. He came to seek out and save sinners. He came to identify himself with them and offer them life and forgiveness. We read here in this passage of these Pharisees, these religious leaders of Jesus' day. They also had a ministry strategy. The practice of their faith was practiced in isolation and separation. You see, to them, identifying with sinners was to be avoided at all costs. And there's an irony in this that we can't miss. Because whenever, whenever we're going to see throughout the book of Mark, we're going to see uh, these religious leaders compared to Jesus, and they're always going to look bad. But that's not fair, is it? Because any one of us compared to Jesus, we're always going to look bad. And so, it's, so we can't just, just put, put a comparison to Jesus and be like, well, they're terrible. But while it's easy to spot some selfish motivations in the things they did, this also remains true. In all that they did, they thought they were right. In all that they did, they thought they were doing something for the Lord. They constantly believed that they were on the right side and on the right team. Listen to this warning that Jesus gave his disciples right before the cross in John 16. He's telling them about the persecution that's going to come after his resurrection. He said, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. By the way, we see this in the book of Acts, right? Jesus is telling his disciples about the persecution that's coming. He's saying, these people that are going to attack you and kill you, they're actually going to believe they're doing it for God. This is some sort of service they're offering to the Lord. That's why I want to zoom in for a second on these Pharisees and religious leaders. These guys had all the exterior wrappings of faith. They walked the walk. They talked the talk. Everything on the outside looked good. They're in the synagogue every week, some of them daily. They studied the word. If you were a Pharisee, that meant you had to memorize the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Some of them set out to memorize the entire Old Testament. They prayed a lot. They tithed. They carried boxes of Scripture around their neck. They observed, faithfully observed the law and all the ceremonies and rituals in it. And somehow, through all of that, they missed it entirely. They missed it. Because if we're going to expand a little bit on John 16, Jesus doesn't just say that in their persecution they're going to, they're going to think they're serving God. He also makes a diagnosis. Look at this. He tells them they're going to ban you from synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. That's what's going to happen. Here's the diagnosis. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. And in all of that religious effort, 
in all of that religious culture, in all of their religious experiences, somehow they never knew the God they claimed to serve. You want to know one of the most terrifying things about pastoring? It's knowing that this still has to be happening. That people can go to church for years and years and years, decades even. They can pray. They can tithe. They can study this book. They can read Christian books. They can consider themselves fully Christian and somehow miss God in all of it. Human beings have not lost this ability. They can do all that and somehow still not have or understand the heart of the Father. And what happens is this often leads to a very similar playbook, very similar outcomes. Their faith and religion becomes a strategy of isolation and separation. Where they would just write off entire groups of people or generations as, as simply unworthy of their time. They'll look at everything through a deeply skeptical lens. They'll have an edge to them at all times. And not only will they not have a burden for the lost, they'll actually have a disdain for them. And with these postures and these outlooks and these attitudes, they constantly misrepresent the heart of the Father. They misrepresent the Jesus they claim to follow. And all along, they're convinced they're on the right team. Because that's the most damaging aspect about being a Pharisee, is that Pharisees are always the last to know they're a Pharisee. Because what comes with it is a confidence and assurance that's misplaced. Now, the antidote to all of this is to never, ever forget you're the tax collector. That you are the sinner that's been shown tremendous grace by God. You are the sinner that's been shown tremendous love by God who identified himself with you and claimed you as his own, and you did nothing to earn that. We have to view ourselves rightly, and not just for the sake of others either, because confidence in ourselves is not only misplaced, it's dangerous for us, and here's why. There's only one group who Jesus can't help. Since Jesus brought up the analogy, let's just go ahead and ask the question, who can't a doctor help? Somebody who's healthy. People don't schedule an appointment, go to their doctor, arrive at the appointment and say, I'm totally healthy, I have nothing wrong, no issues, can you help me with that? Healthy people don't go to the doctor, sick people do. Now the irony is this, that spiritually we're all sick. Romans chapter 3 verse 10, as is written, there is no one righteous. Nobody, right? not even one. And so when you, you see in verse 17, when Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, he, he's not saying that some people are indeed righteous. He knows more than anybody that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. What he's saying is this, that anyone who thinks they're righteous, he has nothing for them. Because there's another group a doctor can't help, and it's those who refuse to be helped or those who refuse to admit they're sick and so they never come for it. Now, there's a lot of amazing things about Jesus Christ, and this is one of them, that his love, grace, and mercy, and forgiveness know no end. There is no cap on them. They are boundless. They go forever. They are yours for free by faith, and he will not ever stop showering them on you. They never run out, but the only prerequisite is this, is recognizing and believing that you need it. And by the way, this makes sense if you think about it, because think about what he endured in which he left heaven and subjected himself to human form, and he felt hunger and weariness and temptation and pain and struggle and grief, and he withstood all of it and never sinned. 
He was rejected and ridiculed and scorned and abandoned and betrayed. He was beaten. He was whipped. The flesh was torn off his back. He was nailed and pierced, and he was hoisted up in shame and nakedness on a cross to suffer excruciatingly in which the giver of life willingly chose death. And he did all of that to give you that grace and love and forgiveness that never runs out. And if you did all that for someone and their response was, I mean, thanks, I guess, but I don't really need it. You'd have nothing for that person. We have to understand to trust in anything other than Jesus is a total rejection of his grace. There is no Jesus and or Jesus plus. It's not Jesus and my good works. It's not Jesus plus my baptism. It's not Jesus plus my church attendance. It's Jesus plus nothing. Because his grace and his love and eternal life is there for any who believe, but you either trust fully in it or you trust in it not at all. And this is why those who were labeled as sinners by their society were always more attracted to Jesus' grace than those who saw themselves as religious because they understood their need. And so they were way less likely to get in their own way. These these are big things. Jesus identifying himself with sinners and paving the way for us to know love and grace and saving us and calling us to a life of service to him. And then you have the blindness and self-deception of the Pharisees. And so as we, we're going to have an opportunity here in a few minutes to, to observe communion together. And as we approach the communion table today, there's just three action steps I want, I want to commit to, to you today. I want to challenge you with. And, it's, and the first is this, to ask God to identify and crucify any Phariseeism in you. And if you're wondering if Phariseeism is a word, probably not, okay? I made it up this week. But you know what it means, Right? And we all need to do this with God from time to time. Because remember, one of the most dangerous things about a Pharisee is that they're often the last to know they're a Pharisee. So don't ever assume that you're above and beyond the trap that these guys fell into. Don't ever assume that your sinful heart isn't prone to this just like theirs was. Ask the Lord to identify and point out any portion of your heart, of this in your heart. For instance, are you quick to just dismiss people? Do you judge and cast aspersions on people who aren't like you? If there's something that doesn't match your preferences, do you immediately just assume the worst in it? Do you have a tendency to determine worth based on just what you see in the exterior? Do you have rules or standards that exceed even what God has given us in his word? And probably the biggest tell is this. Internally, do you see yourself and your actions and your decisions as the standard to which others must aspire to? Ask the Lord to identify these and take them seriously. Because at best, right, at best, these things will bring the amount of fruit you bear for Jesus and his kingdom to a screeching halt. And at worst, well, at worst, they paint a really terrifying picture. Because if you aren't blown away by the grace of God in your life to the point that it changes your approach to others, then it's time to ask whether you've ever truly experienced it. It's time to ask whether you know the God you claim to know. Number two is this. Ask God to help you view yourself rightly. Now, he gives us this a lot. He gives us help in his word with this. Number one, Romans chapter 3 As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's bad enough, right? It gets worse in Isaiah 64. It tells us all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. 
It means the things that you do, right? If you're baking on your good, somehow outweighing your bad, and that your good is gonna get you in good standing with God, the Bible tells you the, very, the good things that you do, the righteous things you do, that you're such a sinner that God sees them as filthy rags. We are all sinners in desperate, desperate, desperate need of grace. Nobody should be walking around with a strut in the kingdom of God. But God, who is rich in mercy, did not use our sin as reason to cast us off. Instead, he pursued us. He came and identified with us and and died for us all to save us, which means this. God will indeed fill you if you just come hungry. He will quench your thirst if you come thirsty. He will lead you if you just commit to following. He will open your eyes if you would recognize your blindness. But you have to see your need for him. And this is true for salvation, it's true for forgiveness, it's true for eternal life, but it carries, this carries long past the moment of our salvation and applies directly to our ongoing life of faith because we don't stop having a sinful nature the day that we give our lives to Jesus. We continue to face burdens, we continue to face struggles, we continue to get in our own way, but often the degree to which we experience God in this life is the degree to which we believe that we need him. The degree to which we experience God is the is is the degree to which we believe that we need him. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is pleading with the Lord to take this thorn away from him, and here's the answer he gets. Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. The power of God in our lives is perfected. It's made perfect in our weakness, not our strength, but in our weakness. It's when we lay down our striving and we give up being our own answer. It's when we surrender and submit to his ways. It's when we release our burdens and release our loved ones and release the mountains that lay before us that his power is perfected and he takes over and does more than we could ever imagine. All of which is awesome, but the flip side is true as well. It also means that the best way to avoid Jesus' power in your life is to refuse to believe you're weak. The best way to avoid Jesus' power in your life is to think that you have the answer. It's the most effective way to not ever experience the power of Jesus. God is fully capable of handling any life that is wholly surrendered to him. So ask him to help you view yourself rightly. And then to close, as we approach the green table, let's end on a high note, all right? Marvel at the truth that Jesus identifies with sinners. You know, there's one person, there's one being throughout all eternity for whom a practice of isolation and separation would be totally justified, and that's Jesus, because he is holy, and he is set apart, and he's not a sinner like us. How amazing is it then that he did the opposite? He loves us. He chose us. He stands with us. He claims us. He identifies himself with us. He's not ashamed of us, and he does not regret saving us. He doesn't have to, but if he had to, he'd do it all over again. Hebrews says that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. That is what Jesus thinks of you. Recently in the Parks household, we've, we've felt convicted to take much more seriously God's command of observing a Sabbath. That we, that we need to live in obedience, setting aside a 24-hour window. And in our practice of it, we decided that we're going to kick it off every time with a big meal all together at the table as a family. And so we, 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 make, we do little things to make that meal feel bigger and more special and more important than every other meal we have. And already I'm to the point where I'm looking forward to it. 
by Monday morning, I'm looking forward to Friday night with great anticipation because I can't wait for my people to be with me, celebrating, eating, and being unrushed. I tell you that because I want you to know this. As we go to the communion table this morning, that is the heart of Jesus for you. He anticipates your participation this morning. He's been looking forward to it. He's excited to share this experience with you. He's excited about the full culmination of it in the future when his kingdom is realized. We have a Savior. We have a Lord who has an overwhelming, all-consuming, never-ending, eternity-changing, deep love for us. We do not deserve it, but we do have it. It's remarkable, isn't it? Praise his name. So if you're in Jesus, that is your reality forever. That will never change. And if you've never believed in him, that's what's available for you today. If you'll just respond in faith. Let's pray. Father, as a sinner, I'm so incredibly grateful that you identified with sinners. You did not cast us off. You did not treat us as things to be avoided. You didn't reject us forever, Lord. You pursued us. You took on our form. You came to us. You said, I have come to call sinners. Lord, that is the overriding hope that, has, that answers every question that we could have in this life. And so as we come as a church to the communion table today, Lord, I pray that anybody who, who has been trapped in religion or trapped in being their own answer and has never truly known the heart of the Father, never come to Jesus for salvation, that today would be their day of salvation, that right now, Lord, right now they would believe. Lord, for the rest of us, as we approach this table the way you commanded us to do, may we realize that you're anticipating this. You're looking forward to this. You're, you're glad that we are here because your love for us is all-consuming and never-ending and never runs out. Lord, may that shape us, not just in communion, but in the way we live our lives as a response. And we pray this in his powerful name. Amen. I'm going to invite one of our elders, Dr. Mark Scholdup. He's going to 